Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder and designer of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Each episode, we take you to meet someone whose work, study, creation or simply life ethos inspires the world of our collections. We invite you to come along on this journey as we meet the makers and thinkers whose contributions have shaped the handmade jewellery we create and the lives we live while wearing it. Being a student of languages myself, I'm continually amazed by the way that switching from Turkish to German or English to Italian changes the way that I interact with others or even my outlook on the world. My guest today is a former teacher of mine from my Melbourne University days. While I might risk having my nerdy linguist side exposed to the world, Leo Katzenbacher is just too interesting a guest not to invite. Having been born in Austria and raised in Germany, he has been teaching and researching in the German Studies program at the University of Melbourne for over a quarter of a century. In that respect, I think it's safe to say that we are both a little nerdy, but in the best possible way. I find translation a high art. A lot of wonderful writers have been translators. And if it's done well, it's done very well. And if it's done extremely well, a translated piece of literature can become part of the national literature of the language it's translated into. What resonates with me is the fact that he never ceases to be amazed by the manner in which linguistic communication is thriving and continually developing as a kind of collective artwork created by all speakers of a language. So thanks for being here, Leo. You're very welcome. So for everyone listening, we're outside in Melbourne spring weather in a very COVID safe way, 22 degrees, so you might hear some background noise, but for all the people who've endured the Melbourne lockdown, I'm sure the background noises will be comforting for you. <laughs> Everyone's daring to come out Yes, again. For, the, for the people daring to come out. Um, it's a really beautiful spring day. So Leo, you're still working at Melbourne University. Yes, I mean, I obviously things have changed since the pandemic. Are you working online predominantly? Do you have many students online or how's it, how's it working these days? Well, uh, these days, uh, it's, it's back online, it's mm -hmm. back on Zoom, the yep. teaching. I'm not teaching this semester, I'm on research leave. But uh, we started in uh, first semester 2020, when, when the pandemic really hit uh, yep. in, 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 in March. Uh, we switched from you know, face-to-face -face teaching to mm. online teaching within a week. Yeah. And um, the last two semesters were all online. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this semester they started teaching in a hybrid way, yeah. which means in classrooms, but we always had to have an online connection because we've got a lot of overseas students mm. and they have a right to complete their education, yeah. of course. So uh, that started this semester, but then, you know, when the, when the, uh, the, the wave hit again and, and lockdown happened again, it was all online again. So. Mm. Who knows? We, we Who hope knows very much future. that we can actually go back on campus next year, next semester. So, I loved Melbourne University. I thought it was such a great vibe. It's just really the, lovely. The old, I don't know, like I found particularly the linguistics um, really inspiring. I thought it was really well staffed. All the languages I studied at Melbourne University were my favourite. And obviously German, I did all the like Nachkriegliteratur and all that stuff. Mm. It was mm. really lovely. 
So we'll dive into more about you for all the listeners. How many languages do you speak? Well, I'm sure you're going to be super picky and say you only speak German. Well, de- 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 define, define speaking. Speak, so, yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 obviously I speak You can German. rank them as you as Obviously you I speak a little bit of English. A little bit. Uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> I, I was married for 20 years to a Greek woman, so I speak a little bit of Greek. Uh, I'm sure a little bit for all those listening, coming from a linguistics teacher, a little bit is probably fluent. No, it's not fluent. I mean, I can, I can survive a kitchen conversation in, in, in modern Greek. Yeah. I, I actually had ancient Greek in school and the best way to make my in-laws laugh was you know to recite the Odyssey, <laughs> the start of the Odyssey in, in ancient Greek as, as we learned it in Erasmic Greek. And they were rolling on the floor laughing because it's complete it's it's pronounced <laughs> Very completely differently now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I studied Portuguese literature, so mm-hmm. I speak Portuguese. It's very rusty now, but uh, through Portuguese I understand most Romance languages. Mm. That doesn't mean I speak them, but yeah. you know, I can I can survive in in Italian and in and in French and uh, Spanish. I did very little Russian mm-hmm. when I was in school, so I can make sense of a lot of Slavonic texts, even even if I don't understand everything. But there are you know, with the Romance languages. The odd one out is Romanian. I'm, I'm lost in Romanian. And with the uh, Slavonic languages, the odd one out is Polish. It's you know, it's impossible it's to understand. It's so difficult. I've heard yeah. to learn. And yeah, that's it basically. And and a, a, a tiny smidgen of Yiddish. Wow. <laughs> I had to learn it because I uh, I, I had a lovely seminar in uh, at Melbourne Uni for a while that was called German and Yiddish: the uneasy relatives. It was quite interesting. I have to say, I've had a few experiences in Europe where I overheard Yiddish and I could understand a portion of it. And I thought, what am I doing? What's going on? And I had the same experience with Dutch because of English and German, but I remember sitting on this train, I think I was going to Aachen in uh, the Netherlands, and I overheard this, these two elderly ladies speaking about their haircuts and mm-hmm. I could understand everything. Mm-hmm. And I was just like having this out-of-body experience. What's... What's going on? That's the that's the beautiful thing about Europe as well, like travelling around and sort of seeing how everything mingles. And uh, like similarly speaking French and Italian, mm. I can understand really easily Spanish and Portuguese mm. to the point where I think I may as well just study them and then get them, you know, up my sleeve somehow. Yeah. Wouldn't take too long, I think, compared <laughs> to something like, you know, perfecting German, I think, is mm. is difficult or Turkish. So tell us about your academic background. Well, I um, studied uh, at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität uh, in Munich. Mm-hmm. We had to do three courses, uh, one major and two minors. My major was called German as a Foreign Language, which is uh, about you know, teaching German, it's about linguistics, it's also about you know, intercultural communication. That was my major and my minors were English and Portuguese literature. I studied that up to PhD level. Then uh, I worked for a few years for the then West Berlin Academy of Sciences in a, in a, in a research group on academic communication. Then I became uh, an assistant professor at Munich uh, LMU in the, in the department where I, where I learned originally. And uh, then I read an ad in with Die Zeit, where they were looking for a 
lecturer German at Melbourne Uni. And uh, Die Zeit, I'm sorry, that's so wild. I applied. Yeah. <laughs> and then I forgot about it. And, and then in, I remember 1995, on the 7th of January, in the middle of the night, the phone rang and they said, can you, can you come in February to, for an interview? And I said, yeah, why not? So I had to get a visa and so on. And then I came here and uh, gave my interview and they wanted me and I said yes. And the rest is basically history. Yeah. It's quite a while ago. <laughs> quite a while ago, yeah, 1995, yeah. My goodness. Where in Germany are you from? I don't think I even know that. I'm, well, you know, usually when, when someone asks me, where are you from? I say, I'm from all over the place. So basically I was born in Austria. And uh, when I was three, my, my family went to the north of Germany, to Kiel. My father was, my father was a professor. Uh, Nordfriesland? No, no, that's uh, Schleswig-Holstein. That's, yeah, that's uh, right. Kiel, the, the capital of Schleswig-Holstein, the northernmost uh, state in Germany. And there we stayed for three years and then we went to Munich. So basically, most of my growing up from, from the age of six was done in Munich. I went to school there, studied there. My so close to Denmark. Well, Munich is not close to Denmark no, anymore, but the, Kiel, of course, Kiel, is. Yeah. Yeah. Kiel is, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, which is ironic because my son's in Denmark now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, from all over the place, my, my uh, uh, ex-wife is, is from Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, family is actually from, from Asia Minor. And, and uh, we met uh, when we had a teaching internship in Portugal, <laughs> uh, of all places, in Coimbra. And, and so my kids were born in, in Germany and, you know, most of us are here and my son's in, in Denmark now. Wow, <laughs> incredible. Mm. So as somebody, I mean, you obviously have learnt multiple languages and you don't only teach German, but you've also studied many yourself. What do you think are the best ways to learn a foreign language? I get asked this a lot and I find it difficult because it's, it's probably personal, but as a linguistics teacher, what would you say? It, it really depends on your age. Mm. So if you're very young, uh, if you're a child, you learn a language to perfection by osmosis. You know, mm. you, you just grow up in the language. You know, that's uh, that's how you usually learn your first language. A lot of children in the world learn two first languages simultaneously. And if I compare my two children, when Julia Julia was nine when we came, and Michael was six. And I think Michael has the better Australian accent. Mm. Not much, but there's a slight difference. So children have it easy. When you grow up, you lose that easy way of learning a language by osmosis. So adult migrants have much more difficulties than, than you know, children migrants to learn mm. a new language, to adapt to a new language. So for adults, It's a bit like swimming, you know, babies can swim. You throw them in the water and usually they swim. Otherwise you have to fish them out. Uh, If you throw adults in the water who haven't learned to swim, they drown because they think I have to do something. So, you know, your your mind gets in the way, your brain gets in the way of actually your reflexes. And I think it's very similar with learning a language. As an adult, you want to know how a language works. You don't just work the language, you want to, to, to know how the language works. Mm. And there's not much you can do except for actually learning the grammar, you know, to, yeah. to learn the rules and, and try to apply the rules. Yeah, so the that's rational mind takes over, kind yeah. of. Yeah. When I was learning particularly Turkish, which is a lot harder, 
than the other languages I'd learnt prior to moving to Istanbul, I found that at a few techniques, like for example, pretending I could understand more than I could. Yeah. <laughs> interestingly, it helps because the conversation keeps going and there's less of a perception that you don't understand stuff. It's interesting, you kind of have to almost do acting. And I mimicked a lot. So mimicking is something that I found would sort of get me in the, in the mindset rather than be like, oh, what would the equivalent in Turkish be of this English thing I'm thinking? Mm. So I would try and like pick up on those small details of the language, which would then sort of make me feel more immersed. And then the other things kind of fell into place for me through sort of weird techniques. Like I don't think you'd necessarily recommend that to anyone to mimic and pretend you understand more. But things fall into place, I find, if if you're living in the country. And then the grammar afterwards I was applying retrospectively. Well, there's, there's nothing, nothing like immersion, you know. I yeah. mean, uh, uh, for learning a language, the best way is actually to surround yourself mm. with the language and, and to immerse yourself in the language. And you did that in Turkey. And, of course, Turkish is very difficult for native speakers of Indo-European languages because it's not an Indo-European language, you yeah. know. So it's like, like, like Hungarian is, is very, it's, it's, more diff, it's more difficult to learn Hungarian than Russian for someone who speaks English or German as a first language because Hungarian is not an Indo-European language. So it's not in the same language mm. family and it works differently. Yeah. But what you said from, you know, pretending you know more, that's very similar to what we do in teaching. So you slightly overwhelm the learners. You, you give them more input than mm. they actually have. And with time, they accept the challenge and they, and they live up to that challenge. Mm. I think it's a control thing. Like if you want to go a little bit deeper... <laughs> In my case, like when I gave up control mm-hmm. of perfecting and sort of like, especially in a country like Turkey, well, I think they're very accepting as well. If you learn Turkish in Turkey, they're just like, mashallah, it's incredible. So there's no real criticism of your mistakes. However, you do, I think you have to go through a process of allowing yourself sound like a five-year-old. Yeah. And then yeah. being cool with that. And, and then you kind of take off, I think, once you get over your own fear of sounding silly. That, that's the one thing that doesn't work with French in my experience, you know. <laughs> if, you, if you try and speak Portuguese in Portugal, everyone is very welcome. The same with Turkish in Turkey, Greece mm. and Greek in, in Greece. In French, well, either you speak very, very well or you stick to English. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, people don't Je appreciate bad, bad French. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I was lucky I was immersed straight into France through my ex so I had his ex- extended circle of family mm-hmm. and friends so I didn't have that experience but that's what I've heard from people who didn't have that I- direct immersion I think it could be changing now as the French get more comfortable with themselves learning English therefore mm. I think it creates sort of empathy mm. you know when you've learned a language yourself when someone speaks with broken English to me in Australia I'm like take your time <laughs> I know that feeling <laughs> so in terms of learning a foreign language obviously like music I think music works, you know, really well on the hemispheres of your brain, yeah. sort of inter-communicating and, like, how your brain works. Even, you know, with things like Alzheimer's and as you get older, learning music is such a huge help. And I know that languages are similar, which is why they say, for, you know, people getting older, rather than using your skills that you already have, learn a language and your brain will go for longer. What other benefits do you like from your personal experience, find learning a language 
Well, I mean, the, the comparison you brought is, is very good because uh, languages, as well as music, have a rules-based side, which is very good for the logical part of the mm. brain. I keep forgetting which one it is. I think it's the left I hemisphere. Think, yeah, and and it, it's got an emotional side. They both have got an emotional mm. side, uh, semantics and, and you know, ways, ways to express emotions through language, which is the other side of the hemisphere, uh, of, yeah. of the, uh, as a hemisphere of the brain. And that's, that's very important. Again, as you said, learning languages keeps your brain active, keeps mm. your brain young when you, when you age. The main benefit from learning languages that I think exists is that every language offers you a different window to the world. Mm. So languages conceive the world in different ways. Yeah. Color terms. Color terms are different in in different languages, even though the rainbow is exactly the same in every language, but color terms are different. So the world, the, the, the spectrum is, is segmented in a different way. And, yeah. and so the view of the world is influenced or pre-ordered to a certain degree by language. It doesn't mm. mean the famous sentence by Ludwig Wittgenstein, die Grenzen deiner Sprache sind die Grenzen deiner Welt. The boundaries of your language mm. are the boundaries of your world. That doesn't mean that you can't escape the boundaries of your language. Of course, as, an, as a thinking person, you can escape stereotypes that your language uh, uh, offers. But the more languages you have, the more views of the world can yeah. you actually have. So, And that's a big advantage of bilingual or multilingual children, they grow up in the knowledge that the world is not actually labeled in one language. That's mm. a big, big advantage. There. I think it, help, it helps with a lot of things, even just empathy, like yeah. building bridges, like the more you can empathize with another language and the views of the world, the more I think, I think if everyone learned a second language through fluency, our politics would be a lot different for example, which is maybe radical and I um, don't know if I'm just opening a whole other kettle of fish here, but I really think that if more people spoke a second language, the world would be quite different. For example, in Turkish, there are all these expressions that I just wish I could use in English. But for example, if someone cooks you food or makes you something, there's this expression, which means health to your hands. I could have said to you guys, because you came partially by foot today, health to your feet mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know someone comes to your house health to your feet and then you sit down and then you serve them something they say health to your hands um, and then they go and you say gule gule git which means go with a smile there's all these beautiful expressions that I just I find the English language lacks in you know I'm sure we've got other great things but those things I always want to say to people gule gule git as they leave my house <laughs> I'm like what? nothing <laughs> um, so yeah it's a I find it, so incredible. Do you find English and German interact more closely than a lot of the other languages you've learned in terms of cultural translation? Well, first of all, uh, English and German are very closely related. They're yeah. both Germanic languages. English, of course, has a lot of Romance vocabulary with, you know, William the Conqueror, 1066 and all that. So as far as the vocabulary is concerned, English is a, a mixture uh, uh, between Germanic and Romance right at the start. But otherwise, English and German are very similar, even 
aspects that uh, English speakers find weird in German, like the, the very complex and long sentence structure. I love it, uh, Thomas. The further Mann's you go style. back in English, the more German it becomes. Yeah. Or if you read English legal texts, they're basically German comma, syntax. You comma, know? Yeah, comma, exactly. Comma. You know? Isn't it Thomas Mann who's famous for that? Uh, Thomas Mann is, is famous for his endless sentences. Honestly, yeah, they go for yeah. pages. <laughs> yeah. His sentences. I remember studying that at uni and being like, I need to take a breath. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this closeness also has dangers like, you know, false friends. A literal translation very often doesn't, doesn't give you the real translation. Mm. You know, like in English you would say breakdown, in Germany you would say zusammenbrechen, break together. You can't, you can't use that, you know, that's not... Yeah. Or even the same words have different meanings, like eventuel in, in German, like in, in, in French, eventuellement means something different yeah. from eventually, you know. And also this closeness of cultures is quite interesting, but also prone to false friends. Mm. Just because uh, people in English-speaking countries, usually they eat with a knife and fork, uh, like, like they do in Germany. Usually they take public transport or they, they, they eat lunch at uh, uh, the same time, you know, and they eat uh, their dinner mm. uh, at, at six or seven in the evening, not at, not at 10, like in Spain or something like that. Oh so gosh, yeah. you, you assume that a lot of, of, of cultural things are similar and yeah. sometimes they're not. So during the first maybe five to ten years in Australia, I slammed into quite a number of brick walls with, you know, German assumptions. Mm. Uh, one of the most striking differences is that, I think it's true for Australia and I think it's true for a lot of English-speaking countries, if you have the choice between honesty and politeness, you would... Politeness. Uh, on the way of politeness. Mm. Whereas in, in the German culture, you would rather go the way of honesty. So Germans are not big uh, small talkers, for example. It is considered impolite to waste people's time, you know, so that's, mm. that's a different way of politeness. But, you know, in, in, in Germany, usually you expect a more honest reaction to what you do or what yeah. you say, and very often that is considered rude here. So you have to, you have mm. to adapt to. <laughs> to Even for me as an Australian coming back to Australia, I've found myself being quite direct and feeling that people are a little bit taken aback by it, or even just, you know, approaching people that I don't know in the street for whatever reason or in a supermarket. Mm. I find it's quite avoidant here. Like, you can feel people avoiding your eye contact. And yeah. it's like, we're in yeah. a one metre square space. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge you. Yeah. But often I feel that that's confrontational here. Mm. And after Turkey, it's just like, you know, I've had old women use my knee. They've hoisted themselves up on a bus seat using my leg. And they're just like, Sergeant, thank you, my, my soul, my yeah, darling. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah touching, touching, touching one another. And or even, even closeness uh, in, mm. in intercultural communication, uh, we call the proxemics. That is vastly different, so even, even across the across the European continent, mm -hmm. you know. So from, if you go from, from north to south, people Italy, are more Napoli, and more close together, you know. It's, yes. it's, it's a normal distance of people is, is closer. And you mm. can test that when if, if, you, if you stand with someone and you go closer, you will reach someone who's not, you know, your, your, your partner or your family, uh, you will reach a point where they 
go back a little bit. So the that's, the, that's the that's the that's the the social distance, or that's the the distance that is appropriate in mm. this culture or for this person. In Finland, they had the joke, and in Sweden, I think it was, they had the joke. Now, now that social distancing is gone, now all restrictions are gone, we can go back to being five meters apart now. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. In Napoli, I imagine everyone was dying from the lack of oh, yeah, yeah. contact. Like people will touch you, they'll speak to you, like no matter what. Like if you're in a hurry, they don't really pick up on that cue, and they'll mm. make like ah, un café, and you're like, no, I've got to go. Eh, bye bye, un café, un café. In Istanbul, you know, people just pick up people's babies they've never met, give them a kiss, grab their cheeks. Mashallah, like, mm, yeah, mm. it's very, very different. Um, I've also found that my personality is quite different in each language I speak, which sometimes I frighten myself with that. Um, I thought, oh my gosh, am I, you know, like multiple personality disorder? But then I realized the more deep in the language you get, the more that I find the personality changes. I think it's a normal thing. I think, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but as far as I'm aware, personality is nothing that is either fixed in time or fixed in communication with people. So you play different roles in your life, you know, you you, you play the role as a businesswoman Mm -hmm. and you would approach business partners differently from your friends or from your family or from, you know, people you interact with uh, in a shop or something Mm. like that. So basically you are, you have roles that are expected from you to Mm. fulfill in society and you act more or less according to those roles. And when when you mix it up, people react uh, weirdly. You know? so, Definitely. Yeah. I find, though, that like the language kind of shapes you. And it's very hard to explain, and I'm not quite sure that I could even put words to that experience. But, for example, how I am in Istanbul, I would say I'm probably far more assertive, um, more mm-hmm. expressive, I would say, than I mm-hmm. would be here. Same mm-hmm. in Napoli, like in, the, in Italian or even French. I would say that I'm more um, vivacious. Yeah. There's more words that you know, you can use that sort of a, a colourful in the expression of emotion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I find myself just saying nice a lot in English. I'm like, come on, Olivia, like, what would you say in, you know, French or Italian? And there are so many more. I know. curse more in Greek than I do in Really? <laughs> in yeah, I, I curse <laughs> probably. probably more in French. They say mm-hmm. putain quite mm-hmm. frequently. Mm-hmm. And so I've sort of picked that up and it just never left my system but yeah I find I find the the way that a, a language can shape your expression even if it's not your native language so fascinating yeah yeah so do you find I mean you obviously haven't been home to Germany for a while now but when you go home do you find it's like fitting back into the most familiar thing or do you find yourself feeling sort of slightly foreign there now too that's a good question. I mean, that's a, that's a question for all migrants, I think. Yeah. With time, I'm annoyed as Australian things from the inside now. You know, when we yeah. came, we were annoyed with Australian things because they were different. Uh, things work differently from how they work back home. And back yeah. home, they work quite well. So something must be wrong with Australia. Now I'm annoyed with Australian things as an Australian. Right. And I'm annoyed with German things as, a, as a, an outsider, as mm. a tourist. I mean, I've been to Germany quite often up until 2019. <laughs> I've got friends there, I've got family there, but I still feel a bit like a tourist in Germany now. So mm. the, uh, a lot of the things that are high on the agenda in Germany are not 
really all that important from my viewpoint. I mean, in, 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 in professional matters, that actually started with the never-ending saga of the German spelling reform. You know, that was uh, yeah. uh, very, very important in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And uh, seen from Australia, uh, where spelling is not taken seriously anyway, I mean, English yeah. spelling is so weird anyway, the big brouhaha about it was not quite that fascinating. You had more of an easygoing approach to that than maybe your German colleagues, is that what you're saying? Yes, okay. yes. I mean, uh, uh, the big difference between English and German spelling is that English never actually had a spelling reform. So basically, mm. English spelling is medieval. But the yeah. pronunciation has changed dramatically. Yeah. Whereas in other languages, I mean, Finnish is a very good example. Finnish is basically spoken as it is written. So it's, it's in a, exactly the same. If you have a double letter, it's a double uh, consonant. Or if, uh, if, if you have a double vowel, it's, it's a long vowel and so on. So it's very, very easy to, to speak Finnish. German is a little bit in the middle, but standard German has has had periodical spelling reforms since the beginning of the 20th century and every reform has its detractors of course mm. and people say you know it used to be okay we used to be we used to spell it that way and that was okay why I changed this and in Germany a whole number of colleagues have made a career out of out of you know the spelling reform and I really don't personally don't think it's all that important. <laughs> it's like it's pretty similar in French actually. For mm. example, there are like things with the liaison between yeah. the s. For example, green beans, you say des haricots, that the green beans, but no, I think you're now allowed to say des haricots. Uh, yeah, yeah. And pronounce the s and it's like a thing that like gets sort of announced. And I always thought that was incredible that words would then make it into the you know, the French vernacular or like, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. that weren't previously considered allowed in a sense and weren't taught at school yeah, and then it yeah. would change. And I just remember thinking it was fascinating for me as a as particularly an Australian English speaker versus, yeah. you know, in England you hear, I believe, a more proper English usage. Well, it depends on whether, whether you Where, talk about the received pronunciation. Or, I mean, in English, there's a thing. It took a while until I've learned that it's supposed to be an historian, mm. not a historian. You know, because it's you know it starts with an H, but it's you know uh, stressed on the second syllable or something like that. So it's it's wow. uh, an historian or an historic thing. Apparently, that's important in in the UK. It's not that important in uh, in Australia. France has a, a history of language control. So mm. basically the, the dictionary of the Académie Française has the character of a law. So and yeah. there, there's a there's a there's a minister for Francophonie, Minister Delegué pour la Francophonie. So basically you can be fined theoretically if you call your bakery a boulangerie shop. If you yeah. use franglais. No one, no one really they, I mean they have very strong laws but no one actually polices them. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, that's very different in, in, in the English uh, context, but even in the German context. So the spelling reform doesn't have lo legal character. You know, there's no, no legal power. The only power that the spelling uh, reform has or spelling has is that a teacher can actually tell a student in school, you spelled that wrong. Yeah. yeah? I suppose it's sort of more cultural, yeah. Yeah. which then like upholds a certain standard. Mm. Mm. 
even me as a non-French French speaker, it's something that like, you know, I'm pretty aware of. And I only lived there for six and a half years. But I still, you know, it's one of those things I keep my eye on kind of. But yeah, English here, it's very flexible. And I think it evolves more as well. Like things get introduced into the English language more readily. Yeah. Uh, in French, they still don't say computer. They say ordinateur. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're going to, they're yeah. like, no, it's, it's ordinateur. Yeah. It's not. Well, I, I forgot so who cool. said it, but uh, there's a wonderful quote that says, you know, English doesn't so much borrow words from other languages and lures it into back alleys and hits them over the head and rifles their pockets for vocabulary. You know? So <laughs> English is very, very liberal in receiving uh, foreign vocabulary, has mm. always has been. And it also has, of course, to do with the colonial language, but it has to do with English as a major trading, world trading language yeah. and so on. Whereas other languages are, have much more of a purist streak, France or French, of course, but also, I, I think the, the most purist language in Europe is actually Icelandic. Uh, they, really? they try to find Icelandic roots and Icelandic words for everything. Of course, it's, it's, it's always a political decision, you know, how, mm. how purist you want to be. And you found that after Yugoslavia broke apart, the different republics that formed on the, on the area of former Yugoslavia had very, very different language policies. And Croatia was one of the countries that had a very, very purist language policy. So while in all other languages on the form, former Yugoslavia, Slovenian and Macedonian and, and Serbian, you have uh, aerodrome or aeroport for, for, for airport. Yeah. You have a different word in, in Croatian. I forgot what it was, but you know, they, they yeah. found a Croatian word for airport. So incredible. <laughs> yeah. I, love, I love that though. I think all this stuff is, is so interesting. I wonder how Turkish is on their language reform. I feel like because it's such a unique language, spoken in obviously Turkey and then some of the you know surrounding countries, I feel like it, it wouldn't change that much because not many people learn Turkish either. I feel like it's kind of like a time capsule, like which is also so incredible. Well, I, I don't know that much about Turkish, but uh, I mean, it's not. It's not very isolated. I mean, you said the neighbor, some neighboring countries speak Turkic languages, but yeah. it's not just, you know, Azerbaijan. It's actually Turkic languages go up until China, you know. In oh, Xinjiang, absolutely. they speak a Turkic language, a language that is related yeah. to, to Turkish. Turkey very much, if I'm not mistaken, considers itself as, you know, the, the mother country of, you know, basically, or the, the leading country of Turkic-speaking people. Mm. I have got no idea how, how that works in, in the Turkish yeah, language. I'm not quite sure. But if I'm not entirely mistaken, Turkey is no exception to the European phenomenon that you have vi wide variety of of dialects across yep, a, so many. a language area. So yep. this is something that Australians are not very accustomed to. I mean, mm. the, 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 the big differences are, you know, you say Newcastle and Newcastle, or, or do you say potato scallops or potato cakes or something like that, and that's it. <laughs> but yeah. uh, compared to Europe, that's not much of a dialectal uh, yeah. difference. Totally. I love also that um, Turkish has so many influences from Ottoman yeah. Turkish, which I find also just so wonderful. I'm pretty Post. sure it has a lot of cultural influences from Arabic yep. via and Islam and, and 
probably also from Persian as, as mm -hmm. a neighboring uh, uh, language, and uh, of course Persian culture was very, very important in, uh, yeah. for centuries in, in, the, in the region, yeah. It's such a wonderful um, bit of land geographically, like mm. all the different mm. influences, it's so incredible. So I wanted to ask you about your favorite piece of German literature. If you had to choose one to read for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Oh, that's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. Okay, you can rank your top couple. Thomas Mann that we mentioned earlier yeah, is, is uh, a favorite. But I, I, I really, really like the, the writers uh, between the two world wars, Weimar mm. Republic writers, Tucholsky, yeah. uh, Kestner. A lot of those writers are not very well known now because their books were burned by the Nazis and they, they uh, it took ages until they uh, were well known again. So there are so many, uh, so many writers uh, that I find fascinating. I mean, of, of the living writers, I, I really, really like Yuli uh, Tsi. I like a lot of the, the Austrian writers. Uh, so it's it's very difficult. It's it's like you know you if you say I think there's an old Arabic uh, uh, thing where someone was was sentenced to live off the same food for the rest of of his life, and he chose a lamb's head because you know he could eat the brain and he could eat the cheeks and then variation. he could eat the eyes. A bit bit of variation. So I mean, mm. it's it's very difficult to to have you know one yeah. <laughs> favorite. How do you find that they translate into English? Like if you were to recommend Thomas Mann to an, an Australian friend, would you feel that it was sort of in a way doing it, you know, injustice to the way it is in, in German? Or do you find that it still translates? Thomas Mann is probably not that difficult to translate. I'm pretty sure that it's more difficult to translate uh, writers who have less of a realist style, you know? Mm. I mean, a, a novel is easier to translate than, than a poem, yeah, probably, definitely. you know? And, and, and the more symbolistic or the more... So Rilke would be dif more difficult to translate, Rilke? even his prose, even his prose oh, uh, things. Rilke, yeah. Kafka would be very difficult to, to translate for a lot of reasons, you know? Mm. So, uh, there, there's an Italian saying, I hope it, it, it is Italian. In Germany, they say it's an Italian saying, uh, traduttore, traditore. Okay. So if you, if you tr the translator is a traitor. I find translation a high art. A 100%. lot of wonderful writers have been translators. And if it's done well, it's done very well. And if it's done extremely well, a translated piece of literature can become part of the national literature of the language it's translated into. Mm. That is the case with Shakespeare's plays, were translated by Schlegel and Tieck in, in Germany, and they are considered part of German literary history, the German translations, because they are so good, That's 18th century translations. They're it? wonderful, yeah. Not to say that they're anyway bet better than, than the original, yeah. but they are so good that they are part of German literary mm. heritage now. If I can choose, I would always choose the original. Yeah. I mean, of course, you can't, you can't read uh, all languages, uh, mm. uh, and, and good translations are extremely valuable. Mm. I, my, my Russian isn't anywhere near as good that I could have read Tolstoy, if possible at all, try the original. Yeah. And tr try to try to 
challenge yourself with the original. Yeah. So my, my rusty Portuguese is still good enough to try and, and, and read a book in Portuguese yeah. every now and then. I've actually decided lately, because of lockdown, I feel like my brain has become like a big lump of pasta dough and I just want to start like sharpening it again. So I'm going to start reading my and, languages. And then you have the wonderful, wonderful writers who are living in two languages, such as Elif Shafak, she's wonderful. I recently read her, her, her last book, I think it was called Island Without Trees, it's about Cyprus. Yeah. And it's just wonderful. And she's got, her English is so brilliant that she writes in English. And, it's a huge uh, skill. Uh, but but she, she has a knowledge of the, 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 the Turkish culture and, and, and the background. And, and uh, so she's a real wanderer between those two worlds. Yeah. And, you know, very similar, Rafik Shami, who is uh, from Syria, but writes in German because he, he uh, was a refugee uh, long before the last refugee crisis. I think he came in the 1970s or 80s to Germany. Mm. He writes in German, wonderful writer. Other people who wrote in their second or third language, I mean, uh, uh, Elias Canetti, uh, who got the Nobel Prize for Literature for his, in, I think in the, in the 1980s, for the works he wrote in German. But German was, I think, his third language. His first language, he was born as, uh, in, in a family of Sephardic Jews in Bulgaria. Yeah, so basically his wow. first language was Ladin, which is Sephardic Jewish Spanish. Mm. Uh, and uh, second language was, I think, uh, Bulgarian and then French. And I think German was his third or fourth language. But he, he was so good in, in, in German that he got the Nobel Prize for his literature written in German. That's just, yeah. I feel like people like that, their brains will go f really well for a long time. <laughs> yeah. That's a serious skill. But I wanted to ask you, because I get a lot of people messaging me just saying, what are your like top tips to learn a language if you're in Australia or in your, not in the foreign language country? So for example, in my case, I would love to be in Turkey right now speaking Turkish, but I'm not. So what would you say that I should definitely do to keep learning and keeping the language alive? Well, the, the, the most important thing is to keep exposed to the language mm. and and these days that is very easy because everything's online you know yeah. you can you can have uh, radio tv programs in in different languages available 24 7 yeah. uh, you can read uh, uh, press you can read literature in different languages online so it's very easy to to keep exposed to it but also keep exposed not just in, in receiving the language, you know, in, in consuming it in, in oral and, and, and written form, but also try and practice it as much yeah. as possible. So find some speakers of that language and annoy them with, you know, your, your attempts to speak that language. Yeah. And, and if they're nice, they will tolerate that and they will even encourage that. Find other people who learn the language and get together, do, a meeting for coffee, do quizzes, pub quizzes in that language and stuff mm. like that. So the more activity you have in the language, the better. If you get stuck on, on something, look up a grammar or ask someone who's actually a teacher of that language or a linguist in mm. that language. But do it, you know, yeah. uh, practice. 
one of my favorite anecdotes is an old Austrian joke where, you know, uh, a young man with a, with a violin case under his arm uh, uh, comes from the uh, main station in Vienna and asks a person, excuse me, how do I, how do I get to the uh, Vienna Philharmonic? And the man looks at him and says, practice, practice, and more practice. You know, so basically <laughs> it's the same. You, you have to practice a yeah. language, you have to practice any skill in order to, to keep it from rusting. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. You've inspired me to go pick up my German and French novels from my apartment and take them back into the last month of lockdown. Thanks for having me. Thank yeah, you. And hopefully this will be the last bit of lockdown. I hope so. <laughs> I feel like maybe one day you'll see me at Melbourne Uni doing some kind of PhD in languages, so maybe you'll be my mentor if I do it in the German language. Of course, yeah, why not? Thank you. Thanks for your thank time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Leo on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. For more information on Leo, you can contact him at the University of Melbourne. To see how I've been inspired by European myth and folktale, check out the Charlemagne Ring, which tells the story of King Charlemagne's love for a beautiful but ill-fated German woman. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. The biggest thing I've noticed overall in my move to a permaculture life is it allows me to broaden my scope. It takes me away from being self-centred and it gives me a lens through which to view the world. Until next time, stay curious.